this evening. Uh, we're going to be continuing in the direction we've been going in the past few weeks, the past couple of months really, uh, looking at the book of 1 Corinthians in the Bible. Um, before we read our Bible passage today, I just want to make uh, a couple of points by way of kind of introduction or, or preface that will really help us see uh, where this passage, where the book of 1 Corinthians is going. Um, and what I'd like to just make a couple of comments about uh, is, is what actually is the church? Uh, there's, a, I think, quite a common phrase um, in, in just the vernacular that you hear people talking about uh, day by day is, oh, uh, I'm going to go to church. It's that kind of idea, or did you go to church? And kind of implicit behind that is the idea that um, the church is some kind of a building that you make a, a, a visit to, or the idea that the church is, is an event. So going to church means you go at this thing um, that starts about 7.30, should be finished about 9.30, and then you head out, and like at 10 o'clock, once, once you're out of it, it's not church anymore. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches about church. When you study uh, in the Bible what, what church is, it's not an event, it's a people. It's God's people. You see, God uh, takes people who rebelled against him, who are sinful, and yet he calls them out of the world to himself. He calls them to live for him, to live holy lives, and then he sends that people back into the world on mission to represent him in the world. So the church is a community of people that exists within the culture, but as a countercultural community. And what that means is when we gather together like this, it is church. And when we scatter and go out from here, it's also church. Okay, so, so if, you, if you came here, and this is something you didn't know before you arrived here, I want you to keep that in mind, because that's a really important truth. So keep that in mind if you didn't know it before. Now, I think that some of you, quite a lot of you probably, have heard that kind of thing before. It's a thing that um, in the church scene at the moment is quite uh, a common point. It's a point that's often uh, made, uh, and rightly so. It's rightly been emphasised that the way you live your entire life is church, and it is worship to Jesus. Absolutely. And so we've seen a lot of kind of clear thinking that started to happen about, well, how do we represent Jesus well, and not just in here, but out there? How do we do that? And um, I think there's a lot more thinking to be done, but kind of people are waking up to the fact that's an important question. However, I think sadly, simultaneously to that happening, there's been a sort of indifference to what happens when we gather together. Almost like a, an anything goes and not the same kind of drive to make sure it is honouring to God. What do I mean by that? Well, well, I think in the last probably few decades, there's been... Um, a movement that's really wanted to challenge a lot of the ways how church was done. And some of the challenge uh, was really, really healthy. So um, to challenge the mindset, well, you need to uh, use kind of 19th century uh, musical instruments. Well, well, of course you don't. And you need to recite certain prayers together. Again, you don't. But I wonder if sometimes, along with the bathwater, the baby has been thrown out as well. Because a lot of the conversations I'm hearing at the moment about the church gathered together tend to have more uh, of an emphasis on how, when we get together, how can we make it really cool and really edgy than how can we make it really honouring to God and obedient to his word. Surely we've got the question wrong. And when we talk about the music, we, we have a bigger, like sometimes the question is more like, I wonder if people really enjoy the music rather than, I wonder if the praise is really pleasing to God 
Almighty. And we ask the question, well, is, is our service a service that's mainly for believers, or is it mainly a service for seekers, where the truth is, it's a service for Jesus, like everything else in our life is all for Jesus. And so what we've done is we've kind of so emphasised the fact that all of life is about worship to Jesus that we've forgotten that the time when we actually gather together is part of all of life and it is for Jesus and we really need to think clearly how can we make sure that time is honouring to him. Now the Bible doesn't make the mistake uh, of neglecting the scattered worship, nor does it make the mistake of neglecting the gathered worship. And particularly 1 Corinthians, that's kind of a a thing that we find going on in the book. In the past few weeks, we've had a lot of uh, preaching that's been addressing how, uh, as God's people, going out into the world, with lots of crazy stuff going on out there, how do we do it well and honour him and worship him in that? So uh, in Corinth, there was sexual immorality, there was a meat that was offered to idols, and, and they're kind of just working through a lot of issues around that, like how do we do that well? And so we've had quite a few preachers on that kind of scattered worship. And now we've moved into a section where uh, Paul, the guy who was writing this letter to the church, is addressing a lot of issues pertaining to gathered worship. So when you gather together, how can you make sure that we're honouring God in this time together? Last week, uh, we read a passage from the start of chapter 11 that's talking about how our gender roles, how um, men and women and the relationship between the two and headship, how that impacts our time together. And next week, we'll be hearing about how we worship as the body of Christ, how we all have a gift to bring. We'll be hearing stuff about how prophecy functions when we gather together, how the gift of tongues functions as we gather together. We'll be hearing how love kind of undergirds and defines all of our gathering together. Our passage today, the theme's going to be the Lord's Supper, the communion, the bread and wine. How does that function? What's the point in it? It can seem to some maybe just a bizarre ritual if they're looking on. But what's that actually all about? And how can we make sure that in communion we're honouring God? So that's where we're going to be going today. Um, If you've got your Bibles with you, um, I'd like to take them and and just turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and read from the scripture um, and then we'll, we'll have a think about what's going on there. 1 Corinthians 11 and I'm going to start reading with verse 17 and go right to the end of the chapter. But in the following instructions... I do not commend you. So that's referring back, in verse 2 he said, look, now I commend you, you've you've remembered me in some stuff. But now he said, look, in this, I definitely don't commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant 
in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. So the church in Corinth were clearly getting communion really, really wrong. The way their church uh, met was, was in houses. So in one sense, you could talk about the church in Corinth, all the believers across the city. Yet a few times uh, in the letter, we see reference to different house churches in the city. So um, Paul said, I didn't baptise anyone except those of the household of Sylvanus. So that was one house church that met in Sylvanus's house. He could talk those of Chloe's household. So there was another house church that met in Chloe's house. So the way they tend to gather was in somebody's house. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't matter where you meet, whether it's a house or um, a room like this or a really fancy cathedral. But it doesn't matter where you meet. And the way that they would typically do communion is they'd do it in the context of a meal. So they'd all go around to the house. They'd have a meal together. And during that meal, someone uh, would pick up the bread and say, hey, this bread uh, is Christ's body broken for us. And, and this wine, uh, this is his blood shed for us. So they celebrate communion within the context of a meal. Again, there's nothing particularly wrong with doing that. And yet the Corinthians had clearly got communion severely wrong. It says... Um, and verse 21, um, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Basically, the way they did communion uh, was like a big old bring and share lunch where nobody was sharing. Everybody was just getting on with their own meal. I think they'd taken something of the culture um, of hospitality from, from the city around them and brought it in. Uh, to their Lord's Supper. So the way in Corinth people would have a meal, you'd get some rich fella who decided he wanted to host a meal. He'd invite people round to his house and he'd get like a real kind of prime Michelin star chef in to cook some amazing food for like him and two or three of his best mates. And then there'd be a, a few other people who were slightly less important who'd been invited. And, and you know, he'd, he'd be quite nice to them. He'd get them, like, I don't know, a, a takeaway pizza and be like, you know, enjoy, you're my guest. And, and then there'd be some kind of poor and needy people who'd been invited as well. And he'd be like, look, you guys, to be honest, you should just be really thankful you've been invited to my house. Uh, so he'd get them some really kind of scraggy meal out of the leftovers. That's the way they did hospitality. So it wasn't one meal for everybody, but it was a nice meal for the really rich and then kind of filtered down. And I think something of that culture they took into the way they shared this meal over which they had communion. So the rich were treated one way and the poor treated another. I think we particularly see uh, what the issue might be when we go down to verse 33. It says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So um, it's like some were getting into the meal before the others had arrived. Again, this was an economic thing. 
So the people who were rich, they didn't really have to work that much. They had loads of money. They could just kind of like stroll out at like 10.30, do a few hours, finish at 3, have it nice and leisurely, get all the mates together and start early. Whereas amongst the number also, there were poor people, there were slaves who had to work long, long, long days in the fields and finish late. Okay? And, and they got there very late. And it's like by the time they got there, all they found were all the rich people. They'd scoffed all the food. They munched all of it. It had gone. And the wine, they'd polished that off too. They were a little bit drunk. Their stomachs were full. And there was nothing left for the poor. I love how practical the word of God is, by the way. Verse 34, Paul's got a brilliant solution. He said, look, if any of you are hungry, eat at home. Have some food before you come. Make yourself a sandwich, you know. Call, call the McDonald's on the way. Just get some food. And then you're not mentioning all the Lord's Supper, yeah? And he's a very practical God, what he puts in the Bible. Um, the problem, uh, the heart of the problem, really, was what was the communion, which is meant to be an expression of the unity of the church, had become an opportunity in Corinth for division. So it's meant to symbolise unity, but they made it a divisive thing. The passage has an emphasis on them coming together. It says, when you come together, that phrase is used four times in here. Paul says, look, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. The idea is you're coming together. But in Corinth, you're using it to wedge people apart. You've got it all wrong. In chapter 10, verse 17, we heard this a couple of weeks. He says, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. Look, the emphasis here is we're sharing in this together. Because we're united in Christ, because we're feeding on the same Jesus, we're symbolising it by doing this together. There's a oneness of the church about it. Now in Corinth, that, that had all become about disunity. And then, then in verse 19, he just puts a caveat in. He said, look, not all divisions and factions are bad. Sometimes it's necessary. If you get some geezer raising up who's kind of false teaching or live in a false way, then those who are genuine uh, will need to stand apart from that and say, no, actually what you're doing is wrong. So sometimes division isn't always a bad thing. But here in Corinth, these divisions are shameful. These divisions are contrary to the gospel. And he actually says, look, when you come together, it's actually doing more harm than good. That's how stark it was. In particular, the divisions were, were economic. So the rich having a blast and the poor missing out. Church, that is not acceptable. If there's to be one place on earth where there's to be an even keel for rich and poor, it's the church of God. If there's one place where those who have less are in fellowship with those who have more, it's the church. If that gathering together is pushing out the poor, if it's kind of ostracizing the needy, uh, if it's kind of dividing people on social or economic lines, then our gathering together is offensive to God and it's doing more harm than good. In fact, Paul says, look, when you come together, it's so missing the mark, we can't even call it the Lord's Supper. He says, when you gather, this is not the Lord's Supper. I don't know what it is you guys are doing, but that is most definitely not the Lord's Supper. He's challenging them pretty hard. Let's make sure that we learn from their mistakes. Let's make sure that Revelation Church, let's make sure we're not characterised by the same stuff. As we approach God's table, let's make sure we've got our mindset towards the poor right that we realise that the poor aren't irrelevant or peripheral. And the poor aren't a project like, a, oh, we'll do our thing and throw them a bone once in a while and feel all smug about it. Let's remember that the poor are people. Let's remember that the poor are part of our community. Let's remember that the poor are loved by God. Let's make sure that our concern for the poor, let's make sure we're expressing it in practical ways. 
Let's make sure um, that we're doing stuff. So as a church, we've got guys who are going out, getting alongside the homeless, feeding them, getting to know them, befriending them. We've got, um, we've got a fund called 245 that some of the guys from the church are paying into so that those amongst our number in financial hardship can say, look, I'm really hard up and we can look at how we can help them. We're looking to uh, set up a cap centre here so that those who, who are burdened by debt so that we can bless and help them. And uh, we're putting a team together for that. It may be that one of the practical ways you can help is sign up and do that. But um, make sure in practical ways you're helping the poor. Make sure as you approach the Lord's table that the way you do kind of meal fellowship isn't kind of excluding the poor. Sometimes without realising it, we do that. Like, what about when we just gather a bunch of people and say, hey, we're going to go and have a meal out? Well, maybe there are some people we, we invite who just can't come and join us in that fellowship because they don't have the money. Or when we invite people over and say, you know, let's all get a takeaway, uh, and, and it ends up costing like a tenner, well, maybe people are missing out on fellowship because we've priced them out of it. And when you do invite people over, make sure you're inviting people as well who can't repay the favour, who can't invite you back. Make sure that um, as well as being aware of the poor locally, and I think um, it's hard to deny that there's poverty um, all around us, but let's make sure we're aware globally of just how stark it is. Because as the uh, global church gathers, there are many congregations in the West who, who do have our fill, while congregations of our brothers and sisters across the world are going hungry. Let's make sure that as we approach the Lord's table, we're responsive and generous to needs that arise. You know, um, a few months ago, there was an earthquake in Haiti. That was a real need. As a church, we took a special offering. We sent um, £1,300 over to help these people in Haiti. Again, tonight, we're going to take a special offering. We want to be remembering the poor, responsive to the needs. And I'm sure many of you are aware of the situation in Pakistan. Um, the last report I read said 1,600 people had been killed in the floods. It said many thousands of people had been displaced. It said that 4 million people had been affected by this. This is a huge need. And so we're going to take a special offering. We're going to look to bless those people as we come together. You see, the church in Corinth, they were being rebuked for coming to the Lord's table uh, with a heart of indifference to the poor, a heart that wanted to push them out. Let's make sure that as we come, we're coming carrying the poor in our heart and looking to bless them. And having said that, having challenged the Corinthians, saying, no, 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 you've got it all wrong, Paul then goes on and he reminds them. He says, look, let's take it back to what I taught you about this when I came, back to the very beginning, back to what communion actually is all about. And he writes this from verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the night that he died, Jesus and his disciples, they were eating. And in that meal, Jesus said, you see what we're doing tonight? You see how we're breaking the bread? Do you see uh, how we're taking the cup and drinking the wine? I want you to do this on a regular basis and do it in remembrance of me. So the communion is a remembrance meal. Now that meal itself, that last supper that Jesus had with his disciples, that meal itself was a remembrance meal of another event 
when God had acted in human history in a saving way. And that was the Passover. So to understand uh, the significance of what's going on as we break bread and drink wine, I'm going to take you right back to the beginning and share the story with you. In fact, we're going to start right at the very beginning. God creating humans. And God created humans to have communion with him. That means to have fellowship with him. He created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden for the purpose of communion with him. Yet, Adam and Eve chose to eat without God in rebellion against him. They chose to kind of push God out of the picture. So all of humanity, because we've all followed in their example, we're all under God's judgment. And yet God, in his grace, he chose a people for himself. He called a man, he called Abraham and his descendants to himself. And he made some extravagant promises to that people. Now, I want to fast forward you 400 years in history. It looks like God has forgotten those promises that he made. Why? Because his people are slaves. They're in the land of Egypt under the harsh regime of the Pharaoh. He's having them, uh, got harsh kind of slave masters over them, having them make loads and loads of bricks for him. Very hard, breaking manual labour at its force. And it looks like God's just forgotten about them in their suffering. But God has not forgotten about them. God has seen them. God has had compassion upon them. And so he called Moses to himself. He appeared to Moses in a burning bush, and he says, Moses... I want you to go with a message to Pharaoh on my behalf. I want you to say to him, Pharaoh, they're not your people, they're my people. And so let them go and worship me, says God Almighty. So Moses did. Pharaoh said, no, I'm not going to do it. So there was a bit of a showdown between God and Pharaoh. God kept sending Moses to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, no, so God judged the oppressors. And Pharaoh was like, all right then, I'll let them go. Just stop this plague that you've sent. Um, And so God stopped the plague and Pharaoh's like, no, just kidding. I'm going to keep them here for a bit longer. So there was a kind of escalating judgment. And nine times this cycle happened. The plagues got harsher and harsher. So the river was turned to blood. Gnats were sent on all the land. The people burst out in boils. Locusts came upon Egypt. So we went through nine plagues. And after the ninth plague, Pharaoh was like, yeah, I'll let them go. No, just kidding. They're my slaves. I'm not going to do it. And then God threatened a final act of judgment upon the oppressive Egyptians. He said that his angel of judgment would enter Egypt. And this angel would strike down the firstborn of every family and of all the cattle in all of Egypt. And then he said to his people, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb, a perfect lamb, without blemish. I want you to sacrifice it. I want you to take its blood and smear it on your doorposts. And then I want you to feast on the lamb. And then when the judgment comes, what happens is this. I will see the blood. I will know to pass over you in judgment. You see, just like the Egyptians... God's people are sinners in rebellion against him. And he's a holy God. So had the angel of judgment come and the blood wasn't there, they'd have been just as liable for judgment as the Egyptians. As would we. We all need the blood covering us to be spared the judgment. And it happened. It happened as God said. So he judged the Egyptians. He spared his people because the blood had been smeared over their doors. And they were set free. They left the land of their oppressors. And they began their journey towards the promised land. And God said to them, okay, now you're to feast every single year in memory of this. 
You're to get together for a week. You're to eat the unleavened bread. You're to take a lamb and you're to sacrifice that lamb and feast on it and remember this great act of salvation that I did. And so as they did it um, each year, what would typically happen is um, like the head of the household, the most senior person there, if there was a rabbi or something like that, they'd take a lead in telling the story of what had happened and interpreting why it was such a significant moment. Well, the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples, that was one of those meals, a meal remembering the Passover. And then this is the meal that's referred to here in 1 Corinthians 11. And so Jesus, as the leader of the group, well, the onus was on him to explain and interpret what had happened in the Passover. And what he said is this, this is my body which is given for you. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So what Jesus is saying is, look, the significance and meaning of the Passover event and the Passover feast is all found in the sacrifice that I am about to make. He said, look, think about it. Do you really think that the judgment of God Almighty is spared on the basis of a dead sheep? No. It's spared on the basis of the perfect, blemishless Son of God, the Lamb of God, dying upon the cross as the perfect sacrifice for sin. The Passover is symbolic of Jesus. It's his blood by which the judgment of God is spared. He is the perfect blameless lamb of God. And as God um, passed over the firstborn son of all the Israelites, of all his people, his judgment instead fell on his own only begotten son as he hung on a cross. Jesus said, look, I am the Passover lamb. And by my death, just as the Israelites then went free, you will go free. You'll be free from death. You'll be free from sin. You will be free to enjoy communion with me. He took the bread. He broke the bread and he said, look, this is my body which is broken for you. The next day, his body was broken for you. His body was broken for you with those whips that went into his back and tore the flesh from the bone. His body was broken for you as the nails went through his wrists and through his feet, pinning him to the cross. His body was broken for you as after he dies, the spear goes through his side and pierces his heart. He did it for you. It was broken for you. For you. How good is that? The perfect Lamb of God died and he did it for you. That you could be free. That you could have eternal joy in the presence of his Father. He did it for you. And then what he did is he took the cup. And he said, you see this cup? This is the new covenant in my blood. Now, in saying that, he's referring uh, to a promise that God had made through the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, And particularly, he's emphasizing, look, what's happening in the sacrifice I'm making is even bigger and it's even greater than what happened back in Egypt that night on the Passover. It's in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. I'll read it to you. If you'd like to turn there, feel free or you can just listen. But the promise is this. Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, that I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
And no longer will each one teach his neighbour and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. In promising this new covenant that Jesus says was fulfilled as he died, as he shed his blood, God's making four particular promises over his people. Okay, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Listen, if you've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you've uh, turned from your sin to follow him and say his blood is upon your life, your iniquity is forgiven. Your sin is remembered no more. doesn't matter what sin it is. It is God. Amen. It's been wiped out of the memory of God. It says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I've removed your transgressions. Verse 33, he, he says, I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. He, he said, look, look through what happens on the cross and then in Jesus' resurrection, uh, he, he ascends to heaven and he sends the Spirit. And in this new covenant, the Spirit's in you, you're made new, you're regenerated, and you're given a new heart with God's law written upon it. So that from the inside, you're wanting to follow God. You've got a desire to obey. Your heart is no longer living as a sinner, but it's living as a saint, as one of God's righteous who's following after him with his ways on your heart. Verse 34, it says, they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So the deal isn't like you've got kind of a spiritual elite, like you've got a few leaders who know how it is, but the rest of the people can't get to God apart from through these few leaders or prophets. Listen, God's people, you all know God. You have direct access to the throne of God. You can all know him. So in Corinth, when the way they were celebrating this was by deliberately excluding those who, in a sense, seemed lower, the poor, that's ridiculous. That's the opposite of what this is all about. And then in verse 33, he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Now remember the start of the story? Remember that we were made for communion with God? Well, in the new covenant, through the blood of Jesus, we have communion with God. He's our God. We are his people. We know him. We relate to him. So in light of all of this, in light of the great sacrifice of Jesus and what it bought for us, he says, now do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper. It's a meal that's in honour and remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you take it, do so remembering him, the lamb who was slain, slain for you, that you can have communion with God. It's his meal and it's in his honour. And in verse 26 he says we're to keep doing it until he comes again. You see Jesus is coming back. He'll come back as judge of the world and when he comes back he will gather his people together and we will eat with him in glory. It will be a great banquet. We'll be eating with the king. True communion with God. So until that day let's remember him. But when we gather together uh, corporately like this, let's also remember him in our homes, you know, invite other believers uh, and sharing bread and sharing wine. It says in Acts, the early church broke bread in their homes. So do likewise, break bread in your homes, invite people around, share in bread and wine with them. Communion, then, is a kind of remembrance meal for Jesus. I'd also want to say communion um, is a symbolic enactment and participation. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, 
let's just have a, a brief kind of foray into history. About 500 years ago, uh, there was the Reformation. I'm sure a lot of you uh, have heard of that. But one of the big debates going on around that was what's actually happening with the bread and the wine. And some of you uh, who maybe have spent some time around Roman Catholic circles uh, will have heard that, well, what's going on is, is the bread physically becomes the body of Jesus. And, and the wine, it physically becomes his blood. And it's like when we're taking the, the communion, it's like he's been re-sacrificed over and over again every week. But the Bible says, uh, the Bible says, look, the sacrifice of Jesus, it was once and for all, and it's finished now, never to be repeated. And because the sacrifice of Jesus was once and for all, and it is finished, that means it has done the work. It has brought you to God. It, it's a, a completed act. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. So you can enjoy the benefits of that sacrifice. It's not a thing that's repeated over and over again. However, I think sometimes uh, people have swung to a different extreme. And what they'll say is, look, all that's happening is a kind of symbolism uh, of an event that happened 2,000 years ago. But I think there's more to it than that. And it's true that you're symbolically acting something out, but that's more, there's more happening. You're participating in the truth that you're acting out. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, just one chapter earlier from our passage today, uh, Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the, body, in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So we're not eating the physical body, but spiritually, as we share in the bread and wine, we're meeting with Jesus. Spiritually, we're feeding on him. We're being nourished by him. We're receiving the benefits of his death for us. And so through participating in it, we're receiving his grace and growing in him. But because it is a symbolic enactment, uh, and the Bible talks about specific symbols, then the symbols that are being used are important. Now, it's not legalism to want to make sure that the symbolism is right. It's just looking at the Bible and saying, well, if the Bible says it, God's probably got a purpose. So let's do that then. So here's the deal. We're going to break bread because Jesus said this bread is my body so we don't feel like we've got liberty to say well we'll use donuts instead because they taste nice we don't feel we've got that liberty so we're going to break bread we're using unleavened bread the reason for that uh, well 1 Corinthians 5 it's written Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So again, there's a symbolism thing going on there, that in using the unleavened bread, we're kind of symbolising the new life of holiness that we've been called to. We're sharing in one life. So this is like, a, a, I guess, a change in the practice for us as a church, whereas before we've had a few pit of bread, kind of just seeing this verse and thinking, well, how does it apply? We, we want to share in one loaf. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 17 that's led us uh, to this conclusion. It says, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So, well, okay, well, let's partake of one bread then. So, so we've got a really big one. Uh, so we're all sharing in the same one uh, and just symbolizing the unity that we have there. As for what's in the cup, well, all that's said in the Bible about what's in the cup is that it's the fruit of the vine. 
Uh, now, I think the fact that whatever this fruit of the vine is, that the Corinthians were managing to get drunk on it, probably indicates that it, it's wine. Um, uh, and Paul doesn't respond to it by saying, what do you think you're doing using wine? Uh, but kind of takes it as a given. So as a church, we, we, we want to kind of respect this symbolism in the Bible. Uh, so we've got uh, wine with the communion. Again, it's, it's a change in how we're doing it. But from now on, we're taking communion uh, with wine. However, uh, we're aware that for a whole variety of reasons, there might be people for whom uh, drinking wine isn't something uh, that you want to do that you feel is right. Maybe just on your conviction, um, God's later actually don't touch alcohol. Maybe some of you have struggled with it in the past. Maybe you've made a vow to God, said, actually, I'm not going to drink. Um, and so um, because uh, we believe the rule of, of love in the Bible um, overrides kind of getting all the details right, uh, we've got the juice as well. Okay? So the one in the wine glass is the wine, and the one in the juice glass is the juice. Um, Fairly uh, common sense, uh, we thought. Um, so, so as you come forward, just let um, kind of your conscience um, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit um, decide which of the two you choose to drink from. That make sense? Yeah. Good. Cool. Um, now, having kind of outlined, painted this picture of the night that, that Jesus died and kind of instituting communion, um, Paul then goes on and says, look, Given what this is, given how big a deal it is, given what it's symbolizing the body and blood of Jesus, let's make sure we're doing it well. Because there's a worthy way and an unworthy way to take communion. Let's read from verse 27 onwards. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if uh, we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Pretty stark words, aren't they? Communion is a serious business. It's a holy thing. I think those who went before us uh, in the faith, they were onto something when they referred to it as holy communion. They're seeing how big a deal it is because we're symbolizing the body and blood of Jesus. Beware. As you approach the table of the Lord, you're treading on holy ground. It's possible to take communion in a manner that brings judgment on yourself. Now, what does it mean to bring judgment on yourself? Okay, if, if you don't know Jesus, if you've not put your faith in him, if you're not covered by his blood, you're already under judgment. Because like the rest of the human race, you're sinners against God. And that warrants judgment. So if you're not a Christian, I wouldn't take the bread and the wine. It's a serious business. It's a serious business. What if you do know Jesus? Can you come into judgment if you do know Jesus? Well, in a sense, yes, and in a sense, no. In terms of final judgment, condemnation, no. The blood of the lamb is over you. The blood of the lamb covers. God looks and says, no, that's the blood of the lamb. That's the blood of my son, Jesus Christ, on their life. There's no final judgment. However, in terms of temporal, disciplinary judgment, yes, there is. Similar to how a father who loves their kid very, very, very much will say, right, go to your room and stay there for, for ages or, or for a while or however they put it. It's a kind of disciplinary punishment deal. 
God will do the same to us. His purpose, because he loves us, is to keep us from the final judgment and condemnation. Now, these temporal judgments, they can be severe. They were severe in Corinth. Paul says, look, some of you got ill and some of you died in Corinth. And even those who died, that was the temporary judgment of God that on that final day they won't be condemned and actually be raised to glory in the new creation with Jesus. Now, some of you might be kind of freaking out at this point. You might be like, what? So uh, whenever I get ill, that's God kind of judging me and disciplining me. Uh, And people I know who died, is that what kind of... Not necessarily. Not every time that a Christian gets ill or a Christian dies, it's the judgment of God. So, so before you just kind of freak out, and think, well, I can't think of anything I've done, but there must be something. It's probably not you if that's what's going on. How, how would you know if this is happening in your case? I think it's as this scripture's read, as this truth is taught, if the Holy Spirit is just like, bam, 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 and kind of pounding on your conscience with some unrepentant sin in your life, Maybe it is you. In which case you need to respond to what God's doing. Repent of that sin and get right with him. But I don't think the deal is that we freak out every time we see illness and death. Because the Bible gives so many other causes of those things as well. So, we want to take communion in a worthy way, right? We don't want to be the kind of unworthy communionizers. Cool word. I'll keep that one. Um, What does it look like to take communion in a worthy way. Number one, um, take it as a Christian. So if you're not a Christian, here's the good news for you. God has provided the perfect sacrifice to remove your sin. It's Jesus. We've been talking about him all night. He died, and in his death, you can find your sins forgiven, you can find yourself reconciled so you can have true fellowship and communion with God Almighty. How do you get in on the deal? You just receive Jesus. You know, you turn from kind of chasing after your sin and turn to receive Jesus into your life. He's your saviour. He's your Lord. You're with him now. You're following him. So if you're not a Christian, hey, become one right now and then share in the Lord's Supper. How cool is that that you can do that tonight? Second, come to the Lord's table repentant. So is there any sin in your life that you haven't repented of, that you're not fighting against? If there is, Repent of it. Because to come to the Lord's table with unrepentant sin, it's like playing with fire and presuming upon grace. And when I say repent of your sin, let's just be clear what that's all about. Repenting of your sin isn't a kind of saying, yeah, sorry God. Um, Repenting of your sin is saying, sorry God, and turning away from your sin. Okay, it involves actually turning from it rather than sorry, but I know I'm going to do it again later. Um, Three, come at peace with other believers. So, if you've got beef with anyone else, make it with them first. In Matthew 5, it says, If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and come and offer your gift. So that's talking about bringing a gift to the altar. But I think the same applies to communion, celebrating in the Lord's Supper. If there's kind of a lack of peace between you and a fellow believer, why don't you go make it with them? And then actually, why don't you together come to the Lord's table, sharing the bread and wine side by side as brothers and sisters in arms. And actually, coming with other believers is generally a really cool thing to do in symbolising the unity. Come reverently. These symbols are about the body and blood of Jesus. This is the Lord's table. 
not your table, it's his table that you're invited to as his guests. So come with some reverence. Number five, come with celebration. Because what we're symbolising here, that body that was broken, you know what? It was broken for you, so your sins are washed away, so you have eternal life with God Almighty, communion, fellowship with him forever. Come celebrate it. Come celebrate the blood that was shed for a new covenant that you get to be a part of. Come with songs in your heart. Come with joy. Come with dancing and celebration. Number six, particularly in the context of our passage today, come remembering the poor and carrying them in your heart. In a minute we're going to do it. In a minute we're going to share in communion. Just before we go there, um, anyone got any questions or, or stuff that wasn't clear or any other things? No? Okay, well if, if there are questions just come and grab me after. We can chat about any stuff that's on your mind. Here's what we're going to do then. Um, can I just... Um, invite the band to come forward. We, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper. We've got uh, the bread and the wine and the juice here. Um, if, if we've got stuff to repent of, what we're going to do is repent of it. If we've got people to reconcile with, what we're going to do is reconcile with them. We're going to come reverently. We're going to come in celebration and singing and praise and worship. We're going to come remembering the poor. Can I just invite you all to stand to your feet? Would you do that?